Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Southeast Asia is one of the most dynamic in embracing that digital um, economy and has great potential going forward in the next decade or two because of its young and very connected um, populations. I think if Australia was to um, adopt a strategy to engage Southeast Asia, it should really center on making the region more secure, prosperous, stable and autonomous, especially um, in the face of growing great power competition. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Principal Policy Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre, Dr. Huang Lithu, and PhD candidate at the ANU Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs, Gatra Priyandita, join Dr. Will Stoltz to discuss how Southeast Asia's technology and development needs intersect with geopolitics and great power competition in the region. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well, Huang Gacha, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So I, I really wanted to dive into, um, I, I suppose, a broad-ranging discussion about um, the nature of geopolitics in Southeast Asia at the moment. And I wanted to start the conversation very explicitly avoiding the kind of great power competition that so often dominates these discussions and, and speak perhaps more um, more specifically about the, I guess, the contests and, and tensions, um, but perhaps opportunities and, and evolving relationships within Southeast Asia at the moment. So it, I suppose it'd be great to get your overview of, um, you know, the status of the region at the moment. What, what are the what are the big kind of shifts in the balance of power, so to speak, within the region? Um, so I might go to, to Gatra, you to um, kick us off there, and then Huang, I'd love your thoughts as well. Sure. Look, I think there's a tendency to still talk about the balance of power in Southeast Asia from, the, you know, from, from a US-China angle for several reasons. Um, firstly, the U.S. and China do maintain a considerable sizable uh, military footprints in the, in, in the area. Uh, China has expanded its South Seas fleet, including you know adding an aircraft carrier um, in, into its fleet. And the United States also maintains extensive defense networks, both in the form of military alliances with the Philippines and Vietnam. Uh, sorry, Philippines and Thailand, and uh, other you know extensive uh, defense partnerships with Vietnam and Singapore as well. Um, so, secondly. Uh, Part of the reason why all talks about the balance of power in Southeast Asia focus on those two countries is because at the end of the day, Southeast Asia is still a collection of medium-sized and small states. And no single state has the capacity to exert, uh, I guess, any uh, form of potential hegemony even over the entire region. You have countries like uh, Vietnam, which probably can exert uh, some some uh, influence over its neighboring countries like Laos and Cambodia, but Vietnam is incapable of doing so across the entire region. Um, I think traditionally we talk about Indonesia uh, being mm. the uh, leader of ASEAN, right? Uh, the primus inter pares, uh, force among equals. And um, talks about Indonesia as a leader really focus on its, um, I guess, uh, firstly, it's based on its size, it's, uh, but also that it does uh, oftentimes, historically at least, provide solutions to um, major foreign policy problems in, in the region since the establishment of ASEAN. It's played a bridge-building role. Uh, in conflicts, uh, mediating role in conflicts in the southern Philippines, for example, um, it's it's also uh, uh, you know played an important role in mediating even um, you know disputes between uh, leaders within ASEAN um, in Thailand and Cambodia. Most recently, the Pyavihar Temple dispute, um, and it's also been a strong advocate of ASEAN centrality. Mm. Uh, it's always advocated that ASEAN uh, becomes the uh, uh, the ASEAN uh, the regional architecture in in the Asia Pacific uh, becomes ASEAN centered. Um, that doesn't mean that no other country in the region can exert any form of leadership. Uh, Thailand during the Third Indochina War was probably quite 
important in driving ASEAN's agenda. Mm. Um, and same vein, Vietnam is pretty important in uh, engaging Cambodia and Laos um, uh, to counter Chinese influence. And you know, Vietnam even after the 2012 uh, sorry, after the 2012 uh, ASEAN summit, where the Cambodian chairmanship failed to agree on a joint communique because of the South China Sea disputes, Vietnam continues to engage, be in favor of engaging Cambodia and Laos. Um, uh, but demonstrative of the growing complexity uh, of the interlink and, and you know, uh, functional cooperation in the region as well, um, many other countries have uh, you know, play important functional roles and functional leadership roles. So on mm. regulations concerning international airspace, for example, Singapore and Malaysia have shown the political will for the implementation of the open skies against the background of expanding national airlines. On labor mobility, meanwhile, Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand are the biggest advocates of smoother mobility uh, to allow influx of qualified workers from other ASEAN member states because of their own aging populations. And the Philippines is pretty important when it comes to discussions on illegal migration. Mm-hmm. Pong, what's your kind of assessment of, of whether the center of gravity of leadership in the region is is changing or, or is it, um, you know, Gatra there mentioned the, the status of Indonesia, you know, is, is are these things fairly fixed or are you detecting a degree of change at the moment? There is a lot of fluidity, I would say, in Southeast Asia at the moment. And you can feel the pressure of the geopolitics very heavily uh, on the shoulders of Southeast Asian countries. I just came back for two months in the region. And I think that pressure is felt not only from the geopolitics side that Katha briefly mentioned, but also, you know, it is uh, simultaneously with the pressure on the economic recovery from the post-pandemic the countries really uh, have the desire to bounce back, but are constrained by geopolitical uh, uh, factors, including the great power competition, but also the, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine that also fuels um, things like uh, fuel prices and, and food prices and food scarcities. Um, so on top of, of the geopolitics all linked to that and, and, and directly linked to that is also geoeconomics. And I think that kind of pressure uh, for multiple fronts is something that Southeast Asians are really struggling with at the moment because for a long, long time, they are used to a more stable environment where they could uh, almost solely focus on the development uh, and economic development in in particular. But as the geopolitical um, environment uh, and tensions uh, uh, intensified, I think um, it is, first of all, very distracting. Um, second of all, this sense of uh, instability, uh, pressure of, of, you know, taking sides or making choices uh, in different uh, contexts. Um, and at the same time, uh, all of that, you know, and their uh, personal uh, individual countries' performance also will affect their own governance stability. So I think... What I pick up from the two months uh, in the region is that accumulation of pressures, both external and internal, that is uh, really challenging the region at the moment. And uh, also that it affects uh, the um, the balance that you were asking and mm. the regional balance. And because uh, each of a country's individual strategies are um, adopting to the changing environment. And it's not easy that if the environment is changing so fast, um, it's not in the comfort zone of the leaders in the region to be shifting their policies so fast. So um, you'll see that a lot of times Southeast Asian leaders in particular want to deny that great power competition, want to deny that zero-sum uh, kind of framing or want to deny even, you know, um, the reverse effect or anti-globalism. Uh, they would want the world to be, you know, back to the normal, back to the that great where great power, uh, powers, US and China, can work with each other, back to the favorable conditions of globalization where Southeast Asia and their economies have, you know, a very fixed place. Um, but I think that is not necessarily what is happening. And not all countries have figured out or have, you know, ready strategies at place. And they are also as well, you know, struggling to um, make things as we go as the great power competition and geopolitical uh, global conditions are evolving. So you'll see a lot of sense of 
instability, a little bit of um, you know insecurity, tension, and a lot of pressure to perform well despite all of those challenges altogether. It's it's a fascinating insight, um, and and great to get it from you, um, having returned from a tour of the region so so soon. I mean, Gatra, it's kind of building off what Huang's um, mentioned there. It sounds to me like the, that there is a real risk that there's going to be in domestic politics in a number of Southeast Asian countries, a kind of real tension between um, immediate needs versus long-term needs. I mean, would that would, would that be fair to say that this is going to be um, a wide-sweeping challenge for a number of Southeast Asian countries within you know the, the, the domestic political settings? Um, definitely. So a lot of um, Southeast Asian governments uh, are basing their regime legitimacy based on economic performance mm. um, and you know, this is obviously the case in many author- the more authoritarian states, but in a few of the um, uh, uh, democratic states as well, like Indonesia, um, academic de- economic development constitutes an important uh, priority, right? Um, and because of this, uh, the focus oftentimes is to look for short-term uh, economic gains mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Well, for the political leaders, and re- uh, you know, not focus enough on the potential security risks mm-hmm. and aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, we've kind of been speaking around the um, the the great power tension that's that's kind of the backdrop, and I want to go to it a little bit more directly. And 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 this might, in some sense, be a fairly intuitive question, but one that we perhaps don't necessarily articulate all that frequently. And Huang, I'll go to you on this. And the question is, I mean, what are China's long term strategic objectives in Southeast Asia, and and I suppose how are they seeking to achieve it? It's you know, um, that's perhaps a big question, but. But Huang, I'm I'm interested to see your response to that one. I think um, intuitively or not, China wants a region to be a stable one. Um, so, for example, when the coup in Myanmar happened, uh, I don't think that was uh, you know welcome in in China either way. And, and any um, unexpected changes or volatile changes is is not welcome in China either because uh, they also pay. Beijing puts a lot of effort in building relationship, especially with, with the leadership um, in the countries. Uh, so it takes time to forge those relationships. And, and, and so, you know, too often changes of, of government is also not very well seen from Beijing. But um, in general, I think stability, because, you know, stability in what they perceive as periphery, um, as they call uh, often Southeast Asia, is one also of preconditions for their own uh, security, right? Um, another uh, another objective is, you know, good relationship with Southeast Asians individually, but also collectively. So China wouldn't want to see Southeast Asian uh, in any ways, you know, in a solidarity upon one issue that is um, contrasting China's views of, for example, South China Sea or Mekong or any other issue that, um, you know, the Southeast Asian would speak with one voice um, that would differ from the Beijing's voice. So that's uh, that's quite successfully implemented in, in a way that uh, ASEAN has not yet um, gained uh, the, you know, successful consensus over the, for example, one voice in South China Seeds. China wants um, the dispute, the regional dispute, to be bilateral rather than, you know, ASEAN dispute versus China, uh, ASEAN's claims versus China claims, but individual countries' claims, for example. Um, so uh, in that way, you know, China's... But to achieve that, it is very actively um, feeding the narrative and, and actively ma- making sure that uh, Beijing's friendly narrative mm. um, uh, or preventing you know, any hostile narrative to spread uh, across the region and um, to spread, you know, make ASEAN speak with one voice that is unfavorable to Beijing. Um, and equally the same would be, uh, you know, their view um, when it comes to Taiwan. It hopes that Southeast Asia recognize only China, uh, uh, the mainland China, only one China policy, um, and prevent any, you know, discord in that regard. And I think they're doing quite successfully because judging from a recent um, survey from the Democracy Perception Index, uh, majority of Southeast Asian countries um, 
in a scenario where Beijing would uh, invade Taiwan, would not um, abandon their one one China policy. So I think, if, if judging from that kind of um, surveys, uh, you know, China's uh, objective is, is on on a good track to, to be a chief in Southeast Asia, um, and you know, on, on other um, on other. Side, you know, taking a little bit longer historical perspective, I had this conversation with the Vietnamese recently. Is that you know, the this is a new phase, this is a new era because historically uh, speaking, China has tried to invade and occupy Southeast Asia many times, and Vietnam being at the frontier of that. Um, it was never very successful, of course, there was uh, you know, times of occupation, but a lot of resistance. And actually, the geography of Southeast Asia had prevented China from further southbound um, movement. But now, in a different era, with different uh, era of technology, connection, infrastructure, China is making inroads throughout Southeast Asia thanks to its investments in infrastructure, railway building, even ports, um, and, you know, allegedly even um, a base in, in, in Cambodia, right? So through infrastructure and, of course, through um, less tangible things like digital connection, China is making inroads throughout Southeast Asia and it's present, you know, very, very deep south across Southeast Asia. So it doesn't need to physically invade like it used to in, in the history. So that's, that's actually a, a very good point that, you know, its presence doesn't need to be um, taken by, uh, by force, but thanks to the technology, uh, it is present much more than it could in the past. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's a fascinating insight. I mean, the, it struck me that your answer emphasizing that China's um, overall objective is to favor stability in the region is is a really interesting one when it does come to how they respond to to ASEAN. I mean, there seems to be somewhat of a, of a paradox in place to, you know, ASEAN is, is a backbone for security of the region, um, but won't necessarily uh, be favorable or, or accommodating or welcoming of kind of China's kind of um, quite hegemonic approach to wanting to lead the region. So, Gatra, I'd be kind of interested to get your your response to um, to that issue of how China should be or or is interacting with ASEAN. So I think China finds ASEAN as a as a regional organization to be a very favorable diplomatic partner, in part because of its diplomatic its diplomatic style is compatible with that of China's own. Um, you know, international relations in ASEAN is very much shaped by um, the flexible and dominating binding nature uh, of, of the ASEAN way, a principle that underlines the sacrosanct nature of sovereignty. Um, and ASEAN offers Beijing a non-confrontational, you know, consensus-based mechanism for addressing regional issues. That is obviously a stark contrast to mm-hmm. um, how multilateral institutions that quote unquote are dominated by the West would function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, like ASEAN, China's own diplomatic style has traditionally tended to focus more on on forms and substance, um, and um, you know, this this is reflected in in things like the South China Sea disputes where. There's a uh, at the moment, I guess there's a mutual preference. Uh, in, in you know, Beijing has has been advocating for vague and easily circumvented agreements, um, such as the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation and the Declaration of Conduct on the South China Sea. Um, and in contrast, it has it's relatively uh, less enthusiastic about a code of conduct, which many member states of ASEAN, including Indonesia, for example, are encouraging for something that's more binding. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, I want to. Um go to something that Huang um, mentioned before, which is the the uh, the role of digital economy and infrastructure and investment as as a geopolitical uh, tool or element in this. I mean speaking I suppose specifically on um, the, the the digital opportunities for Southeast Asian economies, I mean what are the key um, development initiatives that um, com- uh, that countries need to to see at the moment, and and I suppose what are the real um, the front line um, the front line issues potentially in countries like Indonesia? Because I know Gatra, you've recently published uh, a paper on this topic. Um, so when we talk about Southeast Asia's digital landscape, I think it's really important to set the scene by highlighting some uh, you know key numbers and statistics. Um, Southeast Asia, uh, as a block, I guess, has a population of around six hundred sixty million people. 
and an average internet penetration rate of around 70%. So overall, 460 million people probably use the internet to shop, communicate, do business, and learn. And 40 million of these people only became connected um, in 2020, 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Wow. And, you know, the internet economy is, is expected in the region is expected to reach around $1 trillion sometime this decade. And, you know, the region is already producing, you know, around over 20 unicorns. Uh, com- compare that to like 10 years ago when only a couple were probably around. Now, many Southeast Asian governments are banking on rapid digital transformation to bolster their economies, as well as address potential socioeconomic challenges like unequal access to education and public services. But the biggest problem for many of these countries, especially in places like Indonesia, um, and of course, like the Philippines and Vietnam as well, are skills and infrastructure. Mm, mm. Um, you know, a 2018 World Bank report found, for example, that Indonesia was facing serious ICT skill shortages and projected that Indonesia needed 9 million skilled and semi-skilled ICT workers by 2030. So the primary risk for a lot of these countries is that digital development fails and then vital jobs never emerge, leading to slower economic growth and, you know, less competitive um, economic ecosystem. Um, China, Chinese tech ICT companies like Huawei and ZTE have long recognized the need for human for boosting human capital in countries like Indonesia. They've offered, uh, you know, plenty of training programs, mm. uh, not just at the you know at the at, at the professional level, but also at the university level uh, and uh, vocational school level as well. So China organizes the Lubon workshops, for example. Um, you know, there's like, I think over twenty of them now. Um, which 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 focuses on digital training. It also engages with with government officials. So, um, Indonesia's cybersecurity agency BSSN has a capacity building you uh, uh, know agreement with with the China, uh, with with Huawei, and Huawei has claimed to have trained up to seven thousand people. So they're really delivering on um, on on the need uh, for human skills you know skills development in this in, in these regions in this country in these countries. Um, and at the same time, they're providing the infrastructure that's very much needed at a price that's uh, very competitive. Mm. And, and in part, uh, the cost, the lower, relatively lower cost of these of these equipment, telecoms equipment, like on five G and all that, is because of expert credits. Mm. Huang, this this issue really kind of gets to the point that you made before about there being um, something, I suppose, of, a, of an incentive in um, Southeast Asia to not let certain development issues be starkly framed as, as geopolitical, no? Yes, indeed. And and I think, you know, digital economy or digitalization has become such a buzzword um, in the region. And there's so much enthusiasm about it uh, because it's seen as one of the ways, if not the way out from the pandemic-induced economic stagnation, you know, especially digital economy over the pandemic years have re- has replaced in many ways um, the income that would be normally generated from traditional main sectors of the economy in most of the countries in South Asia, which is tourism, services, manufacturing, uh, and even just to uh, a degree, education, everything was online. And while um, the pandemic uh, and restrictions, social restrictions uh, were in place, people couldn't do the traditional services or uh, tourism wasn't back. So everything moved on to the digital platform. And as Gatha mentioned, Southeast Asia is one of the most dynamic in embracing that digital um, economy and has great potential going forward in the next decade or two because of its young and very connected uh, population. So there is a lot of um, hopes and expectations towards um, this sector and, you know, even Indonesia sharing this year's um, G20 talk digital economy was one of the key pillars. And, and equally in the ASEAN framework um, of uh, this year's uh, Cambodia's chair and plans of post-pandemic recovery, everything is really focusing on digital economy and, and digital trade. So it is certainly an area of growth, um, but it is also very much an Uneven, uh, uneven area because, like Alan mentioned, the the infrastructure base is very much uneven, and the skills are still missing. Um, another thing I would highlight is uh, the cyber security side. Mm-hmm. So everyone is online having at least one or two 
uh, phones, everyone has e-wallets and online payment, um, but the level of security, um, both personal and, and financial, are very, very, you know, uh, diverse. So, um, and, you know, the countries also using different providers, different standards. So I think what we will face ahead is the harmonization of the standards in the region. That will be something that um, as we go along and as the digital adopted, uh, adoption goes so fast, um, we will have challenges in catching up with those standards, um, and particularly when it comes to cybersecurity um, and safety of data and protection of data, especially that each of uh, ASEAN countries have very dissimilar uh, legal framework and regulations. So that would be, you know, at the moment is um, a phase of enthusiasm and euphoria about the digital um, prospects uh, and opportunities it can bring, but I think we'll be uh, very soon hit by the reality of a more stark and more you know, dangerous things that can come with that, which is um, the cybersecurity framework. Mm. Something that strikes me as as, um, quite, I suppose, strange and problematic about this discussion about the digital um, opportunities in Southeast Asia is that often we kind of talk about um, this being kind of this binary choice for a lot of developing countries in the region between a kind of Chinese uh, technology ecosystem and and Chinese-backed investment and and a Western or US-led technology. Technology ecosystem and investment, and they've got to make a choice, or they've got, or the forces, the external forces are pushing them to a point of um, needing to choose. But kind of to what Gutra's research has has pointed out is that well, there isn't a choice in the sense that Indonesia, you know, if they've got all these people who have been educated by Chinese institutions, that they can't they can't remove those people from the system. You know, they, they've already started to embark down. I suppose a, a hybrid model where they've got an economy that's supported by both Chinese-based corporations and Chinese infrastructure and Western corporations and Western infrastructure. So I wonder if we've if we need to move beyond that discussion of of looking at this as as a choice because um, it's far more complicated than that. And I suppose is there is there is there really a risk in um, Southeast Asia of a kind of bifurcated uh, digital society in the sense that you will have some countries on one side of the so-called, you know, a digital wall, and and people and other countries on another side, or is it um, going to be much more of a kind of muddled up system? Gatra, interesting your response to that. Oh well, I think the yeah, digital ecosystem uh, or the telecoms equipment ecosystem in Southeast Asia and Indonesia as well, specifically, I guess, is is generally quite heterogeneous. Right? Mm. It, it's not just Huawei and ZTE getting involved in these things. You know, Ericsson and Nokia are also big players. Um, and in fact, you know. Uh, after Huawei, I think it is Nokia. That's number two. Mm. Um, uh, there is the challenge, I think, in the long run that, uh, especially if we see greater tech competition between the United States and China, um, and uh, you know, perhaps even a reluctance to uh, a reluctance for interoperability between systems, that uh, the telecommunications ecosystem in the region can be, but uh, you know, muddled up, and because uh, you know, Huawei technology, for example, is used for five G. Uh, construction in Indonesia, but that's going to be used primarily for urban areas where 5G will probably be most useful. You know, Indonesia is an archipelagic nation of Mm. 17,000 islands. For rural areas on either islands, they're probably going to use Open RAN instead, which Huawei doesn't have the technology for. Um, So I think it'll be problematic in the long run. Um, uh, It's not that Indonesian officials are not reaching out to other telecom equipment providers. Um, a lot of them just struggle to compete with Huawei because of the mm. prices, mm. but also because of the added benefits, namely, you know, uh, human capital training, for example. Mm. Um, you know, as I've recently argued with Dirk van der Klee and Ben Herskovich in a recent paper that NEC produced, we're really encouraging um, quad countries, Australia included, of course, to invest more in vocational training in, in Indonesia specifically, but also see broadly more Southeast Asia, uh, because this will introduce, uh, well, firstly, it will help uh, Indonesia meet its human uh, uh, its uh, skills development needs. Uh, at the same, you know, at the same time, it will also encourage uh, hopefully more interactions between telecom providers in 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 the quad countries and in Indonesia. We'll be right back. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, Huang, uh, Gatra mentioned the, um, you know, the, the potential for the quad be engaging in kind of more proactive um, development investment in Southeast Asia. And we're obviously very aware of um, you know, vehicles like One Belt, One Road for, on behalf of China. I mean, what are the kind of other um, development investment programs that we should be watching out and that are potentially going to have a kind of significant impact on the region? Um, sure. Could I go back to that um, digital iron cotton question first? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, actually I wrote an article about um, the Southeast Asian views on the Huawei ban and what that means for the regional um, technology standards a couple of years ago. And, and my finding was that, of course, there was a, a worry about, you know, evolving digital cotton with a, when U.S. announced a Huawei ban. But I think in Southeast Asia, it would be very difficult um, to, um, you know, adopt that, that ban. And in fact, none of Southeast Asians, even if they didn't choose Huawei, um, they would, uh, none of the Southeast Asian did formally ban Huawei in participating in you know, uh, critical infrastructure or 5G um, bidings in their countries, even if they didn't opt for that. Um, it, they won't formally ban Huawei just because possibly a political um, uh, uh, aspect of that, but also because Huawei was there to build the previous technologies, including 3G and whatnot. So it would be very difficult to cut and very costly. Actually, the U.S. is paying a big, big billions to um, clean up from Huawei and, and ZTE and other Chinese technologies. So it's not uh, going to be a cost that um, many of the Southeast Asian countries will want to bear. Mm. And second of all, I think, you know, um, if you look at that bifurcation, right, um, Actually, two of um, U.S. treaty allies in the region, the Philippines and Thailand, um, went for Huawei in, in one way or another in their technology. So it doesn't really necessitate, you know, the, the like-mindedness or alignment in this in their choices. I think it it comes to more than just political choices. It also is about uh, availability and affordability. Um, you know, what are the uh, potential um, alternatives, uh, if not Huawei, right, ready and affordable uh, for the countries to choose from. And even countries like I said, Vietnam or Singapore, they didn't opt for Huawei. Um, they didn't. Um, they didn't ban it. And in fact, they are engaging with other um, Chinese technological companies, uh, you know, on quite you know intensively. For example, Singapore uh, hosts uh, the regional Alibaba's. Um, headquarters in the region so it's not um you know one choice means nothing at all i don't think uh, it would be ever possible for this region to be clear out from the chinese technology there and um you know cambodia laos myanmar have adopted um the chinese uh, technologies and even you know it's not just about 5g but uh, another other aspect for example for the philippines under President Duterte, which had who had such a great focus on public security with his own campaign on anti-drug wars, the camera and surveillance systems were provided heavily by China. So it's already embedded in the system. Mm. Um, or you know, in terms of um, e-payment and, and um, 
online banking, a lot of uh, technologies also in Thailand, for example, come from the Chinese companies. Um, the Alibaba and other Chinese companies also build uh, innovation hubs across the region and give it training. So it doesn't stop at 5G. It doesn't stop at what we call here in Australia you know, critical infrastructure. Is from the top level to bottom up, and um, it's it's really a mixture of different technologies. It's not going to be never a clean cut. Whether you know Western technologies or Chinese technologies, it's always going to be a big and messy, messy mm. mixture. Well, and and just on that, I suppose. I mean, we we often, um, I mean, kind of based on what you both said, the. Starting premise is that we assume that the development imperatives and the economic imperatives are the, are the real thing that is driving this choice. But is it also reflective of the fact that uh, these countries just have a very different outlook when it comes to the perceived risk from China, that they've actually just got different security assessments and, uh, and assessments of their interests and they actually don't perceive the same degree of threat emanating from um, these Chinese firms that perhaps we do in Australia. I mean, Huang, what's your kind of reaction to that proposition? Yes, I think to, to a degree it's correct with uh, 5G, the example we just gave, I think uh, for Vietnam it was very clear from the beginning that they don't trust, um, even though they might not say very publicly, and they went for um, you know a combination of home Technologies with Viettel, with Nokia, or you know, mobile phone with Ericsson and stuff like that. Uh, and similarly, I think the attitude from Vietnam uh, in many aspects, whether you, you're talking about technology or infrastructure, the trust uh, to what China offers or Chinese companies offer is very low, not only on the top level of uh, policymakers and decision makers, but also in everyday consumers. And, and that also applies to everything from vaccines to, you know, products, everyday products. Um, uh, and similarly, I think for Singapore, that when it came to um, uh, 5G um, choices, it also was concerned about security and uh, data safety. Whereas, um, and data might have more details on that, whereas, for example, um, probably main decision factors in Indonesia and other countries was not so much security, but more of um, affordability and accessibility. And that comes back to the, you know, the basics of the fundamentals of the relationship, I think, Jakarta might think that it is able to manage the relationship with Beijing and, and there's no immediate threat or risk um, that would, um, you know, um, put their national security uh, in compromise in one way or another. And therefore, you know, the considerations become mostly um, of the economic factors or convenient factors rather than security factors. So, uh, I think there is that element in that as well when we talk about big government decisions. But when we talk about consumer um, uh, decisions, I think it's it's mostly very few people, maybe only with the exception of the Vietnamese, uh, would think about you know how secure and who who owns that uh, company. And I think it's just uh, really about affordability and coverage of the area that they are uh, living and working on. In. Um, I think just to add, uh, there is a general concern, I think, across the region about the implications of a rising China, both in the form of the potential risks of, um, you know, reduced autonomy or uh, direct security implications in the case of Vietnam and the Philippines, for example, um, as well as the possible implications of how the U.S. and other countries might respond to the rise of China. But for many Southeast Asian countries, um, they've only gained independence within the past 70 years mm -hmm. and are more recent to the process of state and nation building. So there are oftentimes more immediate security concerns. And economic insecurity is probably very high up on the list. Um, so it's not that they're concerned, they're not concerned, you know, Indonesia, for example, is not concerned about the possibility of China, um, you know, using uh, Huawei, uh, you know, of, of its 5G technology mm. being, of Huawei installing backdoors into its 5G technology to mm. spy on Indonesian officials. These are concerns as well. It's just that they're number 10 on the list mm. because there's more pressing concerns about being able to provide it will get the uh, you know the infrastructure, the telecoms infrastructure needed to sustain and support the digital economy. And when it comes to cybersecurity issues, 
oftentimes it is issues concerning fraud and and um, uh, data security that's more pressing because the government is is focused on sustaining a, a strong digital economy and mm. that requires the trust and support of the people and if the government if the people aren't you know don't trust that their uh, credit card information for example can get stolen mm. um, is, is safe for example uh, online then they're not going to have any trust in digital technology well, I suppose, yeah, that, that brings us nicely to focus, I suppose, on those other security issues facing the region beyond the great power conflict um, or great power you know, competition that's kind of taking, not a conflict yet, <laughs> competition that's characterizing the region. I suppose, you know, um, Huang, what are, what are the, when you look at the region and you've recently returned, um, you know, what are the other issues that are really captivating the focus of officials in Southeast Asian countries when it comes to security? I think food security and energy security is certainly uh, at the top of the mind of, of um, leaders as well as people in the region, but those are also affected by the geopolitics. So I think for, for the moment, um, I think the, the problem is they can't afford prioritization because a lot of challenges uh, are simultaneous and uh, it, require equal attention. So that's that's the challenge. Um, I think they are worried about how they will uh, sustainably rebound from um, the COVID. I think mean, Vietnam is on more positive and optimistic trajectory. So you don't see as, as much worry um, as in some other countries that, for example, rely more on tourism services. Um, or ex- external tourism, I should say, because, um, for example, in Vietnam, domestic tourism bounced back uh, quite remarkably. Um, but I, I think also in, in terms of um, something that is on, in the background that we often um, don't speak enough about is really the risks from climate yeah. um, crisis, climate-induced changes, um, and that would affect also food um, and other resources, natural resources as well. Uh, and I don't think there are sufficient framework uh, um, and investment in resources to mitigate that. And, and that, uh, you know, can range anything from the Mekong subregion that is a rice bowl for many in the mainland Southeast Asia, but also sea level uh, rise in the coastal um, countries uh, that would include Indonesia, archipelago country, but also also like Vietnam and many other in, in Southeast Asia. So I think uh, the biggest cha- uh, change, a long-term change, will be the climate-related um, challenges because uh, this is actually one of the most vulnerable regions. Um, and there are already studies showing millions, if not more, of economic loss of inadequate adaptation um, to the climate changes, uh, and yeah, and further along, uh, I think more. Um, and, and it's also a region that is very prone to natural disasters already, and mm, climate mm. only will accelerate that. So, I think this is something that um, we talk about, but I don't think the countries have sufficient um, framework around it, uh, and certainly not um, immediate enough. Gatra, do you have any anything to add to this uh, discussion about the other kind of security challenges for the region? I mean, I'm I'm noting, for example, we haven't spoken about Myanmar and the issue of um, you know failed failed states, for example. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, uh, there are many inter, uh, uh, inter, in, internal challenges, right, and intra well challenges, security challenges within Southeast Asia um, that somewhat threaten both unity, mm. ASEAN unity, as well as um, are potential areas that can cause uh, fights in between Southeast Asian states, and the crisis, the, the political situation in Myanmar is definitely one of them. Um, you know, since the February 2021 coup, Myanmar has been such a problematic issue for ASEAN leaders. Uh, they've come to the five point consensus, which has been violated so many times mm. by the Burmese uh, junta. Right? I mean, they uh, they haven't stopped uh, the, the the junta hasn't stopped uh, attacking, for example. But beyond that. Um, you know, just as a practical example of uh, what Huang has mentioned, uh, issues concerning climate change and so on, that, that affects something more practical. Illegal fishing is also mm. probably another internal security challenge facing Southeast Asian states. Uh, now, the South China Sea disputes have exacerbated the threat of IUU fishing, you know, illegal 
unreported, unregulated fishing. Um, and for many navies and coast guards in the region, uh, the, the prospects of, of foreign illegal fishers coming into their maritime boundaries has become such an important uh, challenge. Uh, simply because you know uh, it's a huge industry for many of these countries. Three, it's three billion dollars. The fishing industry is three billion dollars in Indonesia, and for Vietnam, it's like one point six billion. And I suppose it goes to um, testing the you know uh, law enforcement institutions and these sorts of things, as well as their ability to enforce their um, sovereign um, sovereign territorial rights as well. So it's it's a real kind of litmus issue, the the fishing issue. Um, I, before we uh, run out of time, I want to speak. Um, specifically about Australia's future engagement with Southeast Asia. Um, you know, the new, the newly elected Albanese government has has had quite good representation across Southeast Asian capitals in its first uh, few months in in power, um, and we've also seen the announcement of the creation of a an envoy for Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that Australian governments kind of already ha- always have a, a very strong awareness that. Uh, Australia needs to improve its engagement with Southeast Asia. And you'll often kind of get that rhetoric of we need to improve. But but it's sometimes a little bit unclear of exactly what the kind of long-term goals for that improved engagement should be. I mean, is is engagement just an end in and of itself or, or do we need to be a little bit more um, specific here? I mean, Huang, what, what do you think Australia should really be doing when it comes to changing its approach to Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think there is this constant recognition um, in one government or another that is not Australia is not doing enough and could do more. Um, but uh, in Southeast Asia in particular, and I think you know there have been studies showing that, for example, aid to Southeast Asia were on the decline trend, um, mm. and that is something that, uh, for example, could be rectified uh, this time around, given that. Um, judging from the new government uh, engagement and, and uh, foreign minister in particular, Penny Wong, there is quite um, a focus uh, on the region and, and comfort in engaging with the region, judging from her um, early visits in, in, in the region, uh, in Indonesia, Vietnam and Malaysia, as well as Singapore recently, in just a few, you know, first first two months uh, in, in, in her uh, office. I think... Um, there, there are a lot of uh, new areas and digital um, uh, economy, and digital uh, adaptation of technology and, and cyber security uh, so is one key area to engage with, um, especially that in Australia on the global scene has quite a reputation and a good standards um, of the cyber security and, you know, of critical infrastructure, and there's um, a lot in areas of training and capacity building, the skills um, building for the region that Australia can contribute to. So that's one of the uh, policy recommendations that I've also put in um, in my report on digital Southeast Asia, because digital transformation in Southeast Asia will continue because and despite of, of COVID disruption, and that's probably um, a you know, long-term future uh, growth area. Uh, another thing is uh, climate change, we mentioned, uh, is something also new for this government to be more active on um, as opposite to the previous government, but uh, particularly in the area of energy transition. Um, that's something that is very uh, also dynamically happening in the region. And this is also a very um, energy-hungry region that will need to transform from a more traditional um, energy um, uh, to more renewable and sustainable um, um, more, uh, energy sources. And that's where um, I think Australia can have a lot of um, influence given that it's on, on its own way to um, realise its uh, renewable energy superpower potential. Uh, hopefully it will have more imp- uh, input and imprint in Southeast Asia um, uh, in that regard. Uh, I think education is something, there's another area, probably long-term imprint already that Australia has in the region. And given the regions, like I said, um, a young demographic, but also very strong values of education, this will uh, continuously be a strong card that Australia can draw and you know, attracting, uh, becoming an 
an education hub for the Southeast Asians. And, and it's actually quite attractive already, but I think using that more uh, wisely and also tapping into the extensive alumni network across Southeast Asia uh, is uh, something that this government should recognize as well. Gatra, what's your view? I think if Australia was to um, adopt, uh, well, think of a strategy to engage Southeast Asia, it should really center on making the region more secure, prosperous, mm. stable, and autonomous, especially um, in the face of growing great power competition. Um, and, and this basically means focusing on what these countries need. And, and Huang, I think, has very eloquently outlined uh, many of the different challenges that, that Southeast Asian states face, right? And providing assistance on, um, you know, uh, uh, Addressing climate change issues, for example, would be one of them. But of course, uh, one of Australia's greatest strengths is in education and capacity building. Um, and again, vocational training, I think, for for um, uh, providing vocational training for digital skills building across the region is, is one area where Australia can get more involved in. Encouraging research collaboration, focusing on people-to-people ties, um, you know, cooperation between cybersecurity firms to help improve the digital ecosystem of these countries. Um, just probably some of the places where the government... Uh, can focus on. And I think the government has done quite well in starting this off uh, through, you know, Penny Wong's listening tour, I guess, of, of the region. Um, you know, and, and uh, Anthony Albanese's also visit to Jakarta was very well received. Um, so I guess more efforts to engage and listen to the needs of these countries would probably be, be uh, in Australia's long-term best interest. Well, there's some great insights there from both of you and some excellent policy advice to uh, the new uh, cabinet ministers, and I'm sure they're all listening, and I, and I do hope they've been taking taking notes. So, um, Huang, Gatra, thank you so much for making time to speak to the National Security Podcast audience, and we hope to be able to share your insights uh, in future very soon. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.